A quick note before we get started. This episode is part of a series of shows we recorded on the floor of the Phoenix Convention Center during the Association of Corporate Council's 2019 annual meeting. I wanted to point that out in case you're curious about the background noises. I also wanted to thank the ACC for helping make these episodes possible. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. We also have Tracy Walsh joining us, uh, one of my partners from the UK. And then our guest today is Ron Pepe. Ron uh, works at... uh, Canem Steel Corporation, um, where he is general counsel and VP of human resources. And we're talking about a topic that I really think is incredibly important. And it's and it's interesting. A lot of people are talking about it, and that is unconscious bias. And specifically, we're going to look at unconscious bias in connection with the legal department and their role in how do we address unconscious bias, how do we recognize it, how to deal with it. Ron, I appreciate you spending some time with us. I'm glad to be here. Great. Um, Let's start, Ron, actually, with a little bit of background. I know we had talked uh, before we went on air that you spent some time at ACC, and we're here at the ACC annual meeting in Phoenix. Tell me a little bit. I understand you've got some HR background as well as legal. Just tell our listeners a little bit about the background that led up to your current position. Uh, Sure. Yeah, I I currently do manage uh, both legal and human resources for uh, mostly the U.S. operations of uh, Can-Am Steel. Can-Am's one of those companies nobody's ever heard of, but when I meet somebody, I can ask them where they're from and point to something we built there, basically, <laughs> gotcha. whether it's a stadium or an office building or a convention center, something like that. Um, before I had the HR role, I actually worked my way up. I went in-house early in my career for a very large insurance company that at the time had 500 lawyers. So uh, wow. kind of a crash course. And uh, it was like working for a very big law firm, but in-house. But I've been at uh, Can-Am now 25 years. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a long time. How big is your legal department? That's an interesting question. We are, the, the word of the day in companies like uh, steel companies like us is lean. Ah. So we're about two and a half billion in revenue in the U.S. We've got twenty five hundred employees. We got about forty five hundred worldwide. I'm the only lawyer in the U.S. Oh, I did not realize you're the only U.S. lawyer. Yeah, and it's part of me because I run HR and risk management <laughs> I know. as well. I was going to say you're not even just general counsel. You've got to you've got to do the HR piece too. A- exactly. That, so yes, I we so I, I delegate and we leverage our resources. I I have a contracts manager and a legal assistant and an environmental engineer on the legal side. And um, we work with outside counsel quite a bit when we need to, um, since we do business everywhere in North America. Great. And Tracy, I think this is your first time as a podcast guest. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. and It is. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I've been with the firm since 2006. I trained with a city firm in London and moved to the northeast for personal reasons so that's about 300 miles north of london for people who aren't familiar with the geography <laughs> yeah, the geography's in the uk good. most of our we're hoping to get an international audience but yeah. most of our i say the, of the americans would never clue but the international <laughs> yeah. audience would, would yeah, know they, there they we might go pick it up. Yeah. Uh, and most people associate newcastle which is the main office that i work from with coles so mm. you know the manufacturing industry is actually really important to the northeast of, of I England for sure still you're say today. Beer, but that's Not beer. No, that does <laughs> sometimes. Most, you know. And soccer, but you know, mainly coals. Right. Um, 
And I took on the role for board sponsor for diversity and inclusion with effect from the 1st of May this year. So we had an election process and our 130 partners in the UK thought that I might be good for the job. <laughs> and so I've been doing it for the last six months. Hopefully they don't regret that decision and, and voting me into the role. We've been right. busy ever since, but unconscious bias is, is a really hot topic, as, as Ron says, I think everywhere. But in the UK, we're really hot on this. And I'm actually in the process of building what I'm describing as an inclusive leadership masterclass to roll out to our partners and senior business service leaders in the new year. So I'm really excited to wow. hear what Ron has to say yeah. about, about how he's finding things within his business because I'm imagining in the steel industry that there's still kind of a heavy bias towards males in that industry, right? And, and, and it's sort of at all levels. It's interesting because we are largely a blue-collar workforce, but we also have engineers mm. and accountants and mm -hmm. so on. And, and we do some work internationally. We're based in Montreal. So mm. we end up with some cultural differences as well that mm. factor into the equation of dealing with it. And I see it from the HR side as well as the legal side. In the U.S., we tend to turn everything into a legal issue. Mm -hmm. In Montreal, we look at it much more as a cultural thing we're trying to yeah. make some strides with. Right. I'd like to, and I think the three of us clearly have some sense of what unconscious bias is, and I think most people know it, but I think it'd be good to maybe start at definitions and maybe, you know, Ron, if you could tell us how you think of what unconscious bias is before we dig in to how to deal with it. Where, can you tell sure. our listeners, what, what are we talking about when we And, say and it really is bias? separate from the legal concept. It's really the concept that when we deal with people every day, we tend to bring certain assumptions and values to the table. And so whether we realize we're doing it or not, we tend to treat people differently based on some of those assumptions. And obviously we do a lot of talking about racial or gender, but it even applies to things. Studies have been done that tall people get paid more than people who aren't tall. Yes, it's a very I good example that. because yeah, there's probably kinda... not a lot of conscious bias where someone deliberately is discriminating against short people. Mm -hmm. right. But it turns out that actually is a thing that happens, and so that's why we then start to look and say, why does it happen and what mm -hmm. can we do about it? Yeah, and I think it, you're absolutely right. approach it, in the UK? Yeah, because it is broader than just gender and race. It is about, you know, finding people in your in-group, and the brain loves shortcuts. You know, there's a lot of information that it has to assimilate and, and interpret, and the brain just loves shortcuts. So actually, in, in our entire lives, our brains have been trained to find shortcuts and we we find affinity in people who look like us sound like us who've who've got similar backgrounds to us and interests to us and all of that plays a part in how when we recruit somebody or when we promote somebody or when we're deciding what salary raises to give them you know all of those things can just all add up to creating a headwind for people who aren't necessarily suffering from those unconscious bias decisions yeah well, no, I think it's true. I mean, I became very interested in it when I affirmed it a, a session on unconscious mm -hmm. bias and we all had to take an assessment where you're trying to, mm -hmm. you know, evaluate things. And I, I, I do. I mean, I think we all have it. But seeing that you yourself, you know, tend to have that and associate, have positive associations with things that are like you and less positive not, whether it's activities or what school mm -hmm. you went from or where you grew up or how you mm -hmm. sound. It is remarkable if you're candid and honest and try to assess, like, I had no, you know, that's it is. I'm just I'm automatically processing things in that way. And yeah. so it is it's powerful to think about. And and that's where some of that training helps because you tend to not recognize you're doing that. If mm -hmm. you think to, for example, in the workplace, when you bring someone in for a job interview, what's the first thing everybody starts doing? They look for common ground mm -hmm. and they start saying, Where did you go to school? Mm -hmm. What are your hobbies? Absolutely. And instead of talking about actually the functions of the job, quite often we talk about uh, 
those shared connections mm -hmm. like you just mentioned. Yep. And then you tend to walk away from the interview, usually if you right. look at the questionnaires, with a more positive impression right. of people that shared connections with, with, with a you. review that says they're a good fit. Yes. <laughs> Which means, well, right, go, you're yeah. right, and that's such a loaded term, actually. And a good fit doesn't actually tell you much about whether they'd be good at the job. I mean, fitting in with a team is important because you need to know if you're hiring somebody, do they have the sort of personality that I think means they can get on with the team I've already established? Because that is really important. You don't want to necessarily throw, or you might sometimes throw a disruptor into the room if that's what you're trying to achieve. But I think people also respect their colleagues' opinions. And so sometimes if I, you know, if I'm speaking to Ron and Ron respects my opinion and I say, this is a really good person, they're a really good fit, Ron has to work hard to then try and undermine my opinion because automatically comes from a place of respecting me. So before you know it, you're on the unconscious bias train. It's, mm. it's left the station, it's picking up passengers <laughs> every time it stops, right. and it just becomes increasingly dangerous. It, it's not just an individual characteristic. Mm. I think there's something they refer to usually as majority bias, mm. where when you're in a meeting and you start talking like that, quite often whoever's the loudest or most forceful says, well, here's, here's what I think, and it could be based on some of those underlying problems. Mm. And then everybody jumps on board. Sometimes some people just aren't going to speak up and mm. say otherwise. And you can end up with a decision way down the track that no one intended to go there, but that's the way it, it went in yep. the discussion. So is there, and we'll talk about some of the approaches for dealing with it in a minute, but is there a best practice or standard in terms of like these quizzes or assessments? Are there, are there scores? Do you get a, you know, a rating on how unconsciously biased you are? Or are those mainly just a, an orientation step to make everyone realize that we all have unconscious bias? Usually it's to, awareness is the first step. So it's usually the exercises they do at some of the training is more to just make you aware. Mm. Sometimes people are shocked they make decisions that way. Sometimes you do controlled studies. The keynote speaker this morning talked about how we tend to hire law firms based on reputation and branding, which is what law yes. firms want, <laughs> right. to, want, to, want to do. Right. But he talked about a blind study he set up where they rated quality of certain answers that they sent out to different firms. And when they did it blindly and no one knew which firm was answering which question, it was like scattershot all mm. over the board. Mm. And there was not any correlation between the price you were paying for services and the reputation and the quality of the answer. So it yep. was a good example of... You have to, yeah, if that's you strip it away, yeah. that's what we That is interesting, right. Don't tell our marketing folks. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't need to establish our brand. You know, it's a, yeah. and, and there are tests that you can do. So there's an IoT test, I think, from that, Harvard, that Harvard built. And it's a free test. You can access it online. And it's really interesting. Just as It's meant to be a really quick fire test. So you're not meant to spend time thinking about your answers. The idea is engaging that part of your brain that's just automatic. And it's a very quick test. And and you run it, and then it, it usually tells you the sorts of biases that you have. So I was talking to a colleague whose former firm ran this test, and he had no idea, but he found out he had a bias towards people who are over, against people who are overweight. Mm. And he said, you know, I, I just wouldn't have really thought about it until I'm answering some of these questions. And now I kind of realize that it probably did impact my decisions when it came to recruitment. I had this idea in my head of what that sort of meant. And then, you know, roughly speaking, if you run that test and then you do some more awareness training within your organization, and if you then ran the test again, people are that little bit more aware of what they're doing. So now they, they do go a little bit more slowly naturally because they've had the training. But it's only one test that's out there. And sometimes the test by itself isn't helpful, is it, Ron? Because it just confirms that you have a little bit of bias, I have bias, you have bias, Mark. Everybody has it. Sure. If you end up just making everyone think it's okay, we've all got a little bit, we don't need to behave any differently, you've not really achieved your objective ah. in running the test, right? Right. So you need to do other things in addition to the training 
Well, because training only goes so far, and you, as you start to look at the kind of things that help, there, there's sort of two things you can do. Part of it is the training to try and make people aware, so you just try not to do it, but inherently it's, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is you create systems and processes to try and prevent it from happening because you, ha you need some sort of fail-safe given yeah. that people are going to bring those biases to the table. Quite often they are appearance-based, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and, and it happens despite people very consciously thinking they're not doing it. There was mm -hmm. a study done on names and on hiring decisions, names that were perceived to be minority names got fewer job mm -hmm, interview requests. Mm -hmm. yep. Even though the HR departments, I can tell you, they train on this stuff constantly to right. not do this. On the flip side of it, I, I was at an HR conference recently and a couple of my colleagues, the big push now is for artificial intelligence. They're trying to take the human out of it. Mm. Right. A lot of these artificial intelligence machines end up being biased yeah. one way or the other. Yep. That's right. They hit down no, the that's bat. right. If they're based on the data, that ends up being a biased collection of yep. stuff or correlations that are, you know, formed from a biased subset. It's not going to really help. Yeah. You're or just going to automate the uh, yeah. you're going to automate the biases into the system. And if there's not if the people who are coding it in the first place so they use the data but you've also got the people who are coding it and there've been some really high profile cases of some really big names in the IT world who just didn't feature you know, an entire subset in a platform that they were building, you know, Fitbits mm. and, and Apple Watches and things like that. They just didn't seem to factor in women's health in, in some of their app. So it's a really important subject that exactly what Ron's describing, that kind of infrastructural audit that you have to do to try and find the really practical, right. meaningful ways to nudge, nudge the behaviors that people want to try and use, right. but if you don't address, the system will stop them from being able to use. Well, let's jump right to some of those potential measures. I mean, what, for our listeners that are in-house counsel, are there some concrete, and maybe we can talk about training too, but let, let's deal with the second option. You said, you know, try to put some structures in place. What, what do those look like? What have you found successful? A, a lot of the issues tend to come up in the area of HR. So I, I, I see a lot of that because it tends mm -hmm. to come up when you're hiring, firing, or promoting, or giving a bonus or compensation, sort of all of the things we do when we measure people in the employment world. So the first step is to figure out whether you have a problem or not. For example, the government recently in the US has mandated a whole lot of pay equity testing, and they're starting to do this in some other countries mm -hmm. as well. Government contractors have to do it. And of course, our people and our, my HR managers will say, we don't have an issue, we have a salary system. In our case, we have a salary system. It's called the Hay system. You go in, there's a point value for each job. We rate, you're supposed to rate the position, not the person. And yet, when we did that pay equity study, there were discrepancies mm. in there that really couldn't be explained any other way other than this accumulated mm. bit of time of where people start, where they come in, where they get raises. And there are a lot of theories about how that happens. But the first step is figuring out, do you actually have an issue in any of these things. So you need measures in place. You need metrics to gotcha. measure who you're hiring and what they're getting paid and are they getting promoted and what sort of raises are they getting or not getting compared to each other. So you disaggregate the data and then look for trends. And when you find those trends that reflect some bias, what, what do you do? I guess, what do you do then? Right? And, it's right. a two-part. You, you have to diagnose it. But what about on the cure side? What and it, can you and do? it's not just a one-off. I mean, for the things you find, you can say, well, we'll fix this problem. We'll give her a raise, or we'll give him a raise, or we'll do something to, to match mm -hmm. it. But then you got to say, well, how did we get in this position in the first place? So aside from the immediate fixes, what can we step back and do? And, and part of the issue, particularly salary, where this tends to come up a lot, is that 
in most companies, the way it works is they bring you in at a certain level, and then there's a limit on how much you can make each year on top of that. So once you're on a certain track and you come in at a certain point, it's kind of you're, set. You're kind of right, set there, right. unless uh, unless you really adjustment. screw up or do something amazing. So then you got to say, well, what do we do when we bring people in? How do we set those initial salaries? Well, in most companies, what happens is, and this, this is the standard practice, the manager sets and has a discussion with the people and says. What are you willing to work for? What are you making now? And that's always one of the first mm -hmm. questions, which is why sure. a number of states have started in the, in the U.S. have banned salary history inquiries because it tends to work at a disadvantage for people who are working either coming from another industry mm -hmm. or they just didn't ask for a raise, they didn't have the personality to ask for it. A lot of different reasons. And it tends to disadvantage women more just when you look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. So one of the first steps is you, you sort of take that power away. And this is where I put on my HR hat and say, and lawyers, you help your HR people come up with a system where it's a fair system. You're hiring someone to do a job. If they're qualified to do the job, they should make what the pay range is mm. for that job. It shouldn't be have anything to do with what they were making in another role somewhere right. else or even within your own company. It should have to do with what is that job worth. And then, you make, then you've got to look at, as that person's career advances, how are you doing evaluations? And the tricky part there is how do you become... Right. Objective. In, in our case, we tried to simplify the evaluation process to bring it down to a short number of questions that we thought were indicative, but that we could provide samples and train people on how to answer so that people aren't just backing into yeah. doing an evaluation to back into a raise that they planned on giving someone because, again, they might give someone who went to the same school they did right. a better raise if it, if it headed down that path. But it, it's hard to do, and it's hard to change the organizational culture to do that. Yeah. And do you, Ron, do you have, you know, in terms of those measures, do you have very different work types within the company so that actually for some, for some people, the job they do, you might be able to measure them based on their productivity and there are kind of very sort of objective questions you can ask about productivity, but for others, it's, it's a less direct work effort to output type correlation, so it's harder to put in those objective measures. How and do you and that is where it's harder, and I can see why, for example, law firms would really mm -hmm. struggle with mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can measure profitability, but even that, you know, it, it, right. it's a measure over time and it's, it's not perfect. With our, with our blue collar workforce, when we're bringing in welders and fitters, it's a little easier because we say, we pay $10 an hour, we pay $15 yeah. an hour, but even then, we find instances when you do studies that people get spot raises or they get mm -hmm. bonuses mm -hmm. or extra compensation. So again, you got to back that out. Mm -hmm. And managers sometimes don't like that. They feel you're tying their hands mm -hmm. because they think they're rewarding someone who's a good performer. Um, that one of the unconscious biases they call the halo effect, which is where once you think someone is good, you tend to think everything they do is good <laughs> and they tend to get better uh -huh. bonuses. Yeah. Yeah. And it really has little to do with the performance. It's a lot more we're back to some of those inherent situations. So the best advice I can give is to have some sort of structure both about the initial salary, about how the reviews are done, how the promotions are done. You also have to look at your hiring practices in terms of, this is hard to do, you tell your people, don't, don't go out and look people up on Facebook and Google before you hire them. You really shouldn't be looking at pictures of people. Um, some states uh, explicitly ban discrimination based on physical appearance, but it can also tell you things that you probably don't want to know because even if you're not discriminating against anyone, people can bring charges and say, well, that's why I got fired, even right. though maybe they weren't a good yeah. performer. Yeah. So you're, it, it's good for the company to right. adopt some of these things. 
And in your hiring processes, have you done anything differently there, Ron, in terms of, you talked there about the difference that your name can sometimes make in someone's perception in their own mind and they read something into a minority name that they don't read. Have you kind of moved to, say, blind CVs or anything like that to nudge the system? It, it's a mix of things. The, the industry is progressing towards, we just put in an applicant tracking system when we're looking to improve it, partly because you have to measure this stuff. And yeah. We're also a government contractor and we found some things that look to be biased, we really just weren't keeping records very well. Ah. In some cases, we didn't have problems. They just didn't track who the applicants were. Mm -hmm. For example, a female would come in and check the box on the form that said, I'm interested in any open job at the company. Well, when the government audits us, as the OFCCP comes in and says, well, why didn't you hire her as a welder? You're looking for welders. And we mm -hmm. said, well, she didn't want to be a welder. Well, it says on the application and she yes. wanted to apply for yes. anybody. That's a record-keeping yeah. problem as, as opposed to a real problem. We would actually love to have more female welders, to have a little more diversity, but it's hard to find. The, the other piece of it was looking at what is really required to do a job. Because the first step when you start to become objective, even in some of these blue-collar jobs, the managers will say, you need to lift 150 pounds. You need to do this. Yeah. You need to do yeah. this. Turns out... Not everybody actually needs to yeah, do that. Yeah, you may not actually have to and do so that. And so that's not They're real defense. Yeah. Yeah. Some people mm. can't do that, whether they're a smaller man or some of the women. It's, it, it goes across the board. So you have to look at those things. I tell everybody one of the first steps is to really look at your job descriptions and mm. have good job descriptions that accurately describe the position and make sure it keep them current so they describe what that job entails. Then you can build from there on requirements and objective requirements for the hiring so that your initial screening of resumes, getting back yeah. to your question, yeah. is based on the objective criteria and sort of the competency-based mm -hmm. hiring. The harder part then is when people, you can get that and get the right group in for an interview, you then have to make sure when people are asking interview questions, it doesn't devolve into where did you go to school, yeah. which sports team are you rooting for, that sort of thing. You got to <laughs> stick to the script about things that relate to performance on the job. And and that's hard. There's a lot of companies that come in and want to sell you tests that supposedly mm. do these things. And some of those tests aren't really good predictors of how anybody's. I've, I've done a number of those personality tests for high level hires and some of them turned out to be disasters. <laughs> so, Yeah. And yeah. It's that you need to be careful of replacing one potentially flawed system with an even worse flawed system. You know, that that's not progress. And one of the other things that I've read about is that obviously different organizations have different recruiting processes and sometimes they make candidates go through multiple interviews. And that in itself is potentially not the best way to do it. A, because the person potentially suffers from fatigue of having to go through so many interviews and wonders whether they, you know, do they really want me or not? But also because you get this buildup of, of biases that we talked about earlier. So you, you do about one person likes somebody, yeah. they did good, the second person in was great, but didn't look as good compared yeah. to it. One of the interesting tools I've seen is you do um, a lot of companies now, this has good and bad, they do what they call asynchronous video interviews. So you, you push questions out to the candidates, okay. and the candidates pick up their phone, and they answer a set number of questions. That huh. solves the problem of 10 different interviews, where everybody, you can yep. ask different things at each one. It, because then all the reviewers look at their own time back in the office and say, okay, they're all seeing the same thing. Yeah. The problem is, it's a video interview. So then you right. have the appearance-based type thing. So yeah. I, I've yet to see a perfect solution. What I tend to have our folks do is send out a questionnaire. We'll do simply an email and say, answer these questions. Mm -hmm. And then we all review. They're answering the same questions mm -hmm. as the initial round and mm -hmm. initial screen. What you can't rely on is just the automatic, for example, let's not hire anybody with a criminal record. Let's mm -hmm. not do this. Mm -hmm. You know, Companies want to take those shortcuts and 
you're going to miss good candidates, totally yeah. aside from the legal issues you're going to get into. Yeah, and, and it, it's really interesting that you mentioned the language in job descriptions as well, Ron, because I think this works both ways. I mean, I've seen job descriptions for, say, a personal assistant, and especially now with the propensity of a lot of companies to push those adverts through the social media channels. And so there's a lot of clickbait going on, you know, so actually the first few words you use to describe a job can be really powerful in terms of putting someone off or turning someone onto the job. And I think I saw one which was to cover a maternity period of leave and uh, we have longer periods of maternity leave in the UK than you do in the US. Mm -hmm. But the description of the opportunity was, I have a lovely little placement to cover a, a maternity leave period. And, and just those words, a lovely little, you mm -hmm. know, would, would be regarded as more gendered language to appeal to women and wouldn't necessarily appeal as much to a male who wanted to do a personal assistant job, actually. So right. it's really, it works absolutely both the, ways. The wording is important. There was an interesting study, it was kind of fascinating that men will read a job description and they'll scan it and say, oh, there's two or three things of the, of the 20 I can do, I'm applying. Mm -hmm. And a woman will read the description and say, I don't meet all of these requirements, I'm not going mm -hmm. to apply. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a statistical thing. That's not an inherent yeah, bias. That's yeah. not an inherent yeah. bias. That, so you, so you have to, to the so you people also, that are actually applying. Right. So you actually have to adjust for some of the. We, there are differences between yeah. people, right. whether in some of it's gender based, and so you have to adjust for those things. Yeah. That was going to be my next question, which is obviously a lot of companies are trying to improve their diversity. <laughs> Our firm among them, um, and I'm wondering if there's a tension at all between affirmative efforts, things like our Mansfield rule, which we have in our firm about you know, interviewing other people and how you deal with that on unconscious bias. Particularly, I'm thinking if you're, if you're working to take out visual appearance and take out other information that might convey race or gender appearance, and yet you also want to maybe look for added diversity, you know, is, there, is there a tension and how do you grapple with that? It, it can be. You know, at the very first level, what most people do pretty well is you do better outreach. You go, you go mm -hmm. look at people, places you didn't look before. It might be interviewing at schools you didn't traditionally go mm -hmm. to. In our case, we have some tools we've subscribed to where we can push things out to different job boards that are frequented by different groups. Some of them are minority groups. Some are more language-based or racial-based, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So that's, that at least increases the chances you're going to get something. But then beyond that, it, it is a... There's a, there's a lot of debate about it. is it okay to say we're trying to balance it out so we're going to pick people based on these criteria specifically so that we bring enough people in from an interview that are representative and and right. I don't have a good answer for that one I I can hear arguments all around yeah. the yeah. board yeah. yeah I think it's a tough one and you do and you do sometimes get that challenge of so if you're going to bring more diversity into the interview stage because you've specifically gone out and searched for more diverse candidates you know to form one third or one one fifth or one half of your of your right. lineup, that someone might say, so have I missed out on the opportunity now to get that job because you know there's one fifth or one third or one half of the, the lineup that doesn't include me anymore. I think the point is you want to create that equal opportunity to make sure that you're capturing the best people for the job. And once you're looking at more people, then you're more able to evaluate them. And if you know that you've you've also worked hard to try and remove some of those biases then actually you should be able to genuinely evaluate those different candidates. And if you still decide that the white female should get the job, then you've done it because you've had a more systematic and, and robust approach to that rather than just, well, we only ever had white women in the lineup in the first place. You know, you, you then one of them's gonna be a white woman to get the job. There's, right. there's no other outcome that there can possibly be unless you decided they were none of them were good for the role. So 
Yeah, I think it's trying to impress upon and, and get people to buy into that equality of opportunity is good for everybody. Because if you get the right talented people within the business, the business has a much greater chance of being successful, of having different ideas and different innovations come from different places. And that's in everybody's interest. And so we have to kind of recalibrate who we think the best candidates are. There's kind of this myth that we are all shooting for the best. And, and that tends to translate into a certain, and, and law firms do the same thing. It's a certain small group of people mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. certain schools mm -hmm. when really there are plenty of other candidates who could do a very good job if you gave them a chance. And would they do the same job? No, but maybe that's a better way of looking at it. Yeah. You had mentioned the social media, and that's an interesting one because one of the things they're finding with the studies now, a, my daughter's a recruiter, for example, for an organization, and as she told me she does most of her recruiting now through Instagram and Snapchat mm -hmm. and Twitter. When we push things out on social media, just inherently the way it works because of the connections with our friends, it tends to self-reinforce. You hire people like you. Yeah. Same thing with referral programs. Yep. And so you don't get that extra push out there and that extra diversity. So you almost have to figure, how am I going to push that out there beyond the way social networks work, where you're generally connected with people, yeah. the closer connections people, yeah. are similar yeah. people. Because everybody has an in-group. This is, you know, that phrase of, if you examined, if you asked people a few questions, a few simple questions around, what do you do on the weekend? Who do you spend time with? What do your friends look like? What interests do they have? Where did they go to school? You tend to find that people have gravitated towards a certain, a certain group. And again, that's just the brain making shortcuts that that's where I feel comfortable. And I, find I, you know, I'm, I have to work harder to make connections with people who don't share those, those common traits and those common backgrounds with me. So everyone has an in-group and there's no reason why social media would be any different. You know, as you say, there is data to support the fact that people tend to sign up to Twitter feeds and Twitter accounts for people who've got very similar ideas to them and similar ideologies mm -hmm. right. and then they stop listening to the alternative view for the most part. It's not always true of everybody but there is definitely right. a, a bent towards that, isn't there? You, you mentioned training. Is there, did you create your own training for uh, your folks or did you bring an outside group in? How do, what tips can we give to hmm. listeners if they say, you know, we haven't really done much on this. We need to start by training. Is there kind of a, a go-to or suggestions for how to find the I, best materials? I have seen an evolution on this front, and we're going through part of it now. Part of uh, the interesting thing of being a French-Canadian company is we like to, as they said, they always like to build it, not buy it. So we, we wanted to hire people and build training. And on yeah. one hand, that's good because they know the organization. On the other hand, it's not our core competency. And so I think we've had a shift towards, in fact, we are now looking at investing in a comprehensive learning management platform so that we can track our training, easily subscribe to content, measure who's taken what, and do it on a regular basis. Because one of the other important parts is you, you can spend a lot of effort doing one-offs on any kind of training and it's only as good as, as long as those people are there, or a year later they forget it, or they yeah. need right. a refresher. Right. So you, again, we're back to systems. I'm a big fan of, let's put something in place that figures out who's had the training, measures whether they did it, and gives us access to some of the best stuff out there. Nowadays, a lot of it is video, it's interactive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, some of these platforms can do that, and that's kind of our next step. And we're looking at integrating <laughs> those platforms with our applicant tracking so that the people come into the system, it helps us with the interviews, it helps us with some of those things, then it helps with the onboarding to give people a positive review of the company, because mm -hmm. so we keep some of those people mm -hmm. once we bring them in. And then throughout their career, it's a tool to let people develop. One of the challenges is some people aren't real good about seeking out the training they need, or they don't know what they need yeah. to get to that yeah. next level. So we can use these same training tools to provide other kinds of training, whether it's safety or education they need to do their job to move up. So we're 
we're looking at kind of creating that ecosphere. That's where I think a lot of this is heading. That's where the future. Uh, particularly yeah. with people being able to manage it themselves from their phone or wherever yeah. they happen to be. And that's a really important point because actually the, the broader topic of diversity and about making people feel included is that giving people flexibility to do things in the format that suits them at the time that suits them, actually. And so having those things available, as you say, where people don't have to ask for things, that there is, there's a list of things that are available, and then when they can access it themselves at a time that suits them is really powerful. It genuinely is them taking some responsibility for their own training, but in ways that suit them. And on the legal side, you do that, then you've got a great record. You've got a defense. I can mm. tell you, my one uh, big go-around with the OCCP, we spent half a million dollars in legal fees over something that shouldn't even have been a problem and dragged out for five years. Um, but once you head down that rabbit hole, we are, it goes on for a long time and it's very hard to get out. Better to invest in the system and uh, avoid some of those problems up front. And do you, get any, do you get any useful guidance from the bodies that you engage with for your government contracts, Ron, in terms of you know, what they expect to see so you don't get those miscommunication points? It's, it is challenging, uh, okay. particularly with the range here in the states we have between the federal government, now each state, some of the municipalities, mm. everybody's got their own rules. Mm. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what those rules are. We, mm. we build things. So when we're building a convention center in a big city, the city might say, by the way, you have to meet all of our hiring requirements. And, well, oh. where are they? Well, yeah. you need to go talk to somebody oh, and find out yeah. what they are. I can't point to them, but they're out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you think that wouldn't happen, but sometimes there is, they're just as challenged as we are at some of these agencies uh, resource-wise. And it's really interesting, actually, on a, on a wider topic that you mentioned, the subject there of videos and training maybe just even for the, the tools of the trade, you know, mm -hmm. not just on bias or any other HR-type topics, but, but the tools of the trade. And are you finding that there is, it's that same message that for, maybe for certain generations or for certain people generally, there is a, I learn better by video than by manuals. You know, I'm better reading, some people are better reading how the process for how to do the job and some people are just, show me a video, 10 minute video, I'm, I'm gonna remember that more right. so. And, and we, we are definitely seeing a trend towards more video. Mm. Drives me mm. crazy, I get, <laughs> and this is one of those biases, but I'm of a generation where when I'm trying to fix something and I pull up the phone, I want an instruction. Yeah. Because I want to see yeah. the words, and yeah. instead all that pop up are videos. Are videos. And I'm like, yeah. I don't have time to look at a video. I just want to read it. But a lot of people are just the opposite. Mm -hmm. Show me show me yeah. that. Um, and Because the videos tell stories that people can relate to. Right. And but it's a challenge, exactly. isn't it, to have a suite of options yeah. available so that everyone learns in the way that's best for them. Ex exactly. So you've got to make sure whatever kind of system you buy or help you get, it works different ways. And that's yeah. very different than traditionally, whether we brought in outside counsel or the legal department, mm. we'd stand there and do training in a certain way. Lawyers tend to give training, you know, we put up PowerPoints and say, do this, don't do this, right. any yeah. questions. And that is not an effective not, way not, of telling a story. Not the way a lot of people want to learn. No. It's, um, I think it's, it's really interesting, especially in the manufacturing industry. There's a, there's a company that did a presentation to a, a large association of pharmaceutical and, and chemical manufacturers in the UK, and their entire platform and, and business offering is on the basis that they will come into a business and they will turn all of their processes into a video for video oh, wow. format. So they can then roll that out in the training for the, for the next generation. So they will video people working on the assembly line to show them exactly how they do it and then they just record it and you know include commentary and uh, where necessary and it was really picking up traction with a lot of the companies because the idea that someone can just come in there and do that and and it takes a, a process off their desk and then really you can powerful. even find it i mean we get into the whole knowledge management issue a lot of companies aren't very good particularly manufacturing companies like us we 
you didn't invest a lot in the back office stuff, even though you really needed that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we would buy machines out on the shop to help people do their job, but we didn't understand that you also have to invest in. Everybody says our people are our most important asset. Well, then you got to give them the tools to do it. And are you finding? Are you finding that any of the things that you've done have, have helped and made a positive difference? We are finding, it's interesting because we were purchased by a private equity firm that really started focusing on some of these things right. about two years ago. And so they've started measuring and we're seeing positive trends. We, we try and measure particularly with surveys how the employees feel about it, what our hiring numbers look like, and we do, we do see a trend up. I think once, as, as you pointed out, making people feel welcome and included tends to make them stick around. Yeah. So it deals with the problems that we're all facing right now about there aren't enough people to hire. Mm -hmm. mm. That's a good point. And I think we've got just time for one more question, but I wanted to kind of see what you both see as the future. In other words, where are we going here? And your comment about trends was, you know, was a good one in terms of where we're going. And I think, I mean, some people say, well, when are we going to be done with unconscious bias? I'm not sure that ever happens, right? Maybe part of human nature. But I, I would, you know, I, I'm interested in your thoughts. If we look ahead five or 10 years, what does the unconscious bias world look like? I'm kind of curious to see where it's going to go because we, we do have different generations with different needs. They, they learn differently at different levels. And um, some of them are chomping at the bit now about, wait till we take over, we're going to show you how to do this. And I'm, I'm waiting to step back and say, <laughs> okay, okay, we did what we could. I'm it's ready all to a video. hand it over. It sounds like it may all be let's video, see if right? That, that helps. You're not going to read anything. They're going to do a video on how to, how to just change your mindset and ignore your bias. Yeah, but we're back, we're back to where we started, that it's still inherent, some of these. There, there are some real differences, mm -hmm. so we have to learn how to work with those and use right. that as an asset. Mm -hmm. And some of it are just things that uh, we're going to keep making decision until we stop ourselves and say, whoa, wait a minute, let's uh, let's not go there. Yeah, I'm likewise, I think it's, there is so much going on which touches on this subject, but where they're all kind of interconnected ideas. You know, the idea is that a company could be employing five generations essentially, you know, in one workforce. That is a real challenge with everyone wanting different things, different things out of their career, different things out of their life. I think I would be really keen to avoid a situation where, as Ron described, you get a generation just thinking they know it all. Actually, the power comes in collaborative thinking and that collective intelligence. And so I would like to see this complemented by things like reverse mentoring, because I think that matters. You kind of get two ends of a spectrum and coming together and everyone realizing there is value in all of our difference and how do we harness that. But I don't think the challenge is going away for large organizations with the, you know, the workforce challenges that they have. I think it's going, to be, it's going to be a constant work in progress. But you just have to kind of keep constantly monitoring it so you don't end up having the needle tip too far one way or, or the right. other. And that's the balancing act that, that is a challenge. There's no robot that's going to fix it. No. Artificial intelligence right. is not, not the, the complete. Answer. It's a tool, but yeah. there's still a people side of it, whether it's legal or yeah. on the HR, that uh, we're going to have to keep working on. It's great. All right, well, thank you very much, uh, Ron and Tracy. I appreciate your help. Ron, I know you've, you've done some work in this area. Do you have anything coming up or any resources that you'd like people to refer to if they're trying to design their own unconscious bias uh, program? There is such a wide variety, it would be hard to point to anything. And I right. think each company has to step back and say, what issues are we dealing with and, and customize it? Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm. Hope that sounds good. 
Well, I want to remind our subscribers they can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse on iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts, or subscribe at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com. You can also find uh, Tracy Walsh there and get her, get her info and bio. And Tracy, thanks for for joining on this episode. Um, If you have questions or comments about this episode or ideas for future episodes, write me at LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. I look forward to seeing you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womblebond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.